Good to see everyone. Glad to be here with you today. I ask you if you have your Bibles with you to turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning. I am very thankful for Pastor Nathan leading us last week uh, there with Paul's message to the Ephesian elders. I am just slightly jealous that it worked out for him to have that passage and not me, but he did a fantastic job with it. Me, I get Paul's travel plans again. So we had travel plans before, the letter, the message to the elders, and now travel plans again. And so we're going to look at chapter 21, and uh, having spent time with the elders there of the uh, church in Ephesus, we see at the end of chapter 20, Paul with an emotional, a genuine emotional uh, time of affection for those elders from Ephesus as they gathered together. There was much weeping, it tells us. They embraced Paul. They kissed him, sending him away. He tells them, I won't see your face again. So a great emotional exchange there. And then they put him on the ship. Paul is headed to Jerusalem. And so in chapter 21, it picks up with Paul having been put on the ship there uh, in Miletus and now headed toward Jerusalem. So follow along with me in your word, or on the screen, if you will. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For, their, for, their, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship. And they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. 
and your word is good for us. And so, God, as we gather this morning around your word, having already sung according to your word, Father, the great praise to your name, we come now and we ask you to guide us and to shape us and to mold us. Use your word this morning to speak to us. And, Father, we pray. We pray that by your grace and for your glory, we would live a life that is dedicated to following you wherever you may lead. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most difficult things to do in our lives is make decisions. Most of y'all will struggle with that right after church is over on where to go eat and what you should do. You'll have conversation about what place you would like, and you will struggle back and forth. No one will want to make the decision. Somebody will, 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 as soon as the decision's made, throw up some argument for not going there, and you know how the struggle is. Much less, much less what we should do with our lives, where we should live, what should be our vocation, even dealing with that now in our own family with with those who are coming out of the teenage years and going into adulthood and thinking, what should you plan for? What is it that you want to do? What is your desires? Or asking that great overarching question that all of us who are believers must ask, what is God's will for me? These decisions are hard. And what may be worse than making that decision is when you make that decision confidently and everybody tries to talk you out of it. You finally at one point say, this is what I want to do. And then everybody tells you, nah, you probably shouldn't do that. We know how difficult it is to make a decision and then how even more difficult it is to have others join in and even turn, try to turn your mind against it. In our passage this morning, we have that very thing. Even though we follow Paul's journeys here in Acts and we, we, we see him going on that first missionary journey and then the second missionary journey to tell of, of how the Gentiles ha, can receive the gospel and then we just finished up the third missionary journey that ended there with the Ephesian elders and Paul speaking to them. Now he's going on to Jerusalem. So we've been following along with Paul's journeys I want us to remember one important truth when it comes to the book of Acts. Remember that the point of Acts is to show us how the gospel advanced from a small upper room in Jerusalem after the, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, how the gospel went from about 120 in a small little upper room in Jerusalem and advanced to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what the book of Acts is, is really telling us, how the gospel, the good news of salvation has spread. And this gospel advance quite often. And hear me when I say this. Maybe a principle we need to, to let sink deep down into our own hearts and souls. The gospel advances quite often or regularly through suffering. Through suffering. The gospel advances through suffering. In fact, I would say that we need to recognize that the gospel came to us through suffering. And if it's going to come to us through suffering, then we should expect it to go out from us through suffering. And so Paul recognizes that it was through the suffering ultimately of Christ Jesus 
it was through the suffering and his death that, that life came and salvation came, then we shouldn't expect any different. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples this very thing. They hate me, they will hate you. They've come after me, they're going to come after you. The gospel will advance through the suffering of his people. And this bears itself out, bears itself true in Paul's life and ministry. Has this been seen time after time after time where Paul goes, where he ministers, suffering quite often happens at the hands of those who do not believe because of the message Paul proclaims. But even through that suffering that Paul has experienced, the gospel continues. In fact, we see it continuing here because every little city that Paul goes to, there are believers there ready to receive him. And so it is. As Paul begins to move toward Jerusalem, he's moving toward Jerusalem with this understanding that it may be difficult there. I want us to examine what's happening here in our passage with this in mind. The journey is giving us great detail in Acts. Again, testifying this one thing, this is, is Luke. You see Luke using the we. Luke is with Paul on this trip, even giving us to the detail that they passed Cyprus on the, the port side of the ship, the left side, if you will, even giving us down the little details of those things. And Paul and Luke with him are, are going first to the island of Kos, and they're hugging the coast there of, of modern-day Turkey, then, then to the larger island of Rhodes, once a magnificent port and harbor that had been destroyed through war. They, they stay there, and next to the coast of Asia Minor, in, in Rhodes, they aboard this, this larger ship, this cargo ship, not some small ship that's just hugging the coast, but they board this cargo ship, and they, they sail for Asia Minor with Patera, a major port, in the Mediterranean. And there, having changed ships and, and moved on a 400-mile journey to get to Phoenicia, which is there, Syria, and the capital is Tyre. We get all of this detail as we go. And, and, and here, as we get this great detail, we're, we're, we're seeing the care that it takes for Paul to fulfill what he thinks God called him to do. Even the difficulty of the journey to get back to Jerusalem. Remember, he had, he had spent Pentecost in, in Asia Minor, and he said, the next Pentecost, one year, I want to be in Jerusalem. And for some, that seemed like a major feat. Travel was not as easy as it is today. So Paul, with this great desire to fulfill that calling to get to Jerusalem, he heads trying to get ultimately there and he takes a stop. He takes a stop in Tyre. As he lands there, this is the capital of Syria, a great port city. He lands there in, in Tyre, and it says that he spends a week there. The, they're unloading its cargo. He seeks out the, the disciples, and we stayed there for seven days. And then you get verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, this was Paul's desire to get to Jerusalem. We see the great detail of his trip. We see what happened. If you go back to Acts chapter 19, Luke gives us this hint in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. He says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. You see, Paul's heart is turned toward Jerusalem. 
And it says he resolves in the spirit. And now these believers in Tyre are, are there and they're saying uh, through the spirit, Paul not to go to Jerusalem. You start to see the problem here. He's resolved to go through the spirit. They're telling him through the spirit not to go. Paul's desire is seen there in chapter 20, verse 16 as well. If Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he's hastening to be in Jerusalem. He's trying to get there as fast as he can. The Spirit has told him to go. He's trying to get there. And now, on the way, he stops at Tyre. He spends time with the, the, the disciples, believers there, and they tell him, they urge him not to go. Now, why is it that Paul wants to go to Jerusalem? If you, if you have your Bibles there with me, turn or flip, as we may say down here in the south, over to Romans chapter 15. On this journey, Paul is writing his letter to the Romans. You saw back in chapter 19, he's saying to them, you know, I want to get to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And so Paul is writing a letter that will precede him getting to Rome to the believers there, encouraging them and strengthening him, kind of, kind of laying out his desire to get there. And so he writes in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 25. Paul says to them, verse 24, not only do I want to get to you, I want to go to Spain. Paul has a desire to get even further with the gospel. But he says this at verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So Paul's writing here on his way to Jerusalem. At present, he's on his way to bring gifts to the saints. And he tells us what this is, bringing aid to them. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul has spent much of his ministry at odds with the Jews, clearly. They're the ones who get angry with him when he goes into the synagogues because he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ and they don't believe that. And so there's this great odds. But Paul, even as we read Romans, especially Romans 9, 10, and 11, you see Paul has a great heart for his people, the Jews. And so he's been speaking to other believers and he's hearing of the persecution of those who believe, the Jews who believe in Jerusalem. And so he, he takes up offerings, he takes up these aid, and he's taking it to them. That's his desire to get there, his burden to get there. And he tells them in Romans, that's where I'm headed. I'm coming to you, but I'm going to stop in Jerusalem now, a heart for his people to take this offering. And so that's why Paul wants to get to Jerusalem, as he wants to bless them and encourage them as the Gentiles now are giving uh, aid, whether it's wealth or, or money or whatever, they're giving aid back to those believers in Jerusalem. It's a great testimony of what Christ has done in this work of bringing family together, both Gentiles and Jews. So why not go? Why in Tyre do they say don't go? The believers at Tyre say don't go. Paul stops there. It tells us he stops with the believers. You see his stop with Ptolemaeus. He made it to Caesarea. He says down here in verse, verse 8, they make it to Caesarea. And he spends time uh, maybe with, with uh, he spends time here with Philip. Philip, it introduces us. He's spending many days or several days with Philip, the evangelist. Philip is one of the seven chosen in Acts chapter 6. 
Philip is the evangelist. You remember that story in Acts chapter 8 of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and him meeting him there on the road. And so Paul is here as this great evangelist that's been proclaiming the news. He, He wants to spend time with Philip. Game recognizes game and they're talking together. And even as they talk together, you have have also, it says, not only is Philip here, but you have his four daughters who are prophesying. These four daughters, unmarried daughters who were prophesying in this. Now, now understand here, this passage, you know, leads us to some questions. What does it mean that they're prophesying? In our passage, you see basically uh, prophecy or prophesying used in two different ways. One way prophesying is used throughout the scripture is to share or proclaim the gospel. It means to share, proclaim the gospel. It's been used through that throughout church history. We don't use it that way anymore. Just simply proclaiming the good news of Christ. This makes sense with these four unmarried daughters. Philip is an evangelist who's an expert at sharing and giving the gospel. His daughters, like their father, is an ex- are experts at sharing and giving the gospel. You see it back in chapter 2 where this is fulfilled when the Spirit comes. The sons and the daughters all will share and give the gospel. The Great Commission has been given to all of us saints, both our brothers and our sisters, to share and give the gospel. And so here is Philip. Here's his daughter. This is their life's work to share and to give out the gospel. And so they're prophesying, they're they're sharing, they're giving out the gospel. They want others. And and Paul wants to spend time with Philip to learn from him, to hear his stories as he tells them of Paul. But you see prophecy in a different way here, oftentimes the way we think of it. While he's there with Philip, you see prophecy, the idea of predicting the near future events. That comes with this one named Agabus. The reason why I say these may be too different, it doesn't tell us what the unmarried daughters prophesied. It just simply said that's what they did. Here, Agabus comes in and he is going to prophesy something. As he comes in, he takes Paul's belt off. I'm sure that was awkward at first. He wraps it around his hands. He wraps it around his feet. He says, the owner of this belt, this one, will be arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. And in that one sense, now we get finally. We know that the, the, the believers in Tyre had said, don't go. We've seen that issue. Even Luke joins in with them saying, don't go. And we see it here. And now we know exactly why they're saying don't go. Because if you go, you will be arrested. You will go through persecution and you'll be handed over to the Gentiles. In fact, when Paul describes what happens to him later on when he's speaking to to one of the leaders, he describes exactly what happened to him in the same way Agabus describes it here as he looks forward. They all urged Paul not to go because he will be arrested. There will be persecution waiting for him. There's going to be trouble. That's why they saw, that's what they saw in the Spirit, as it tells us. They see what's coming for Paul. They recognize in the Spirit that when Paul gets there, they're going to arrest him. They're not going to accept him. They're going to throw him in jail. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. They see what's coming. And this, my friends, is not a different understanding from what Paul saw and knew. 
Paul, in fact, sees the same exact thing. Look with me back to the Ephesian elders. He, he understands it. Listen to what he says to the Ephesian elders in verse 22 of chapter 20. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. In other words, this is Paul saying, I'm following the Lord's will for me. The Spirit is leading me there. Just as it said they saw in the Spirit at Tyre, just as Agabus comes down and he sees this, he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. In other words, Paul is saying, I don't necessarily know the details. I just know I'm going to Jerusalem because the Lord is leading me there and imprisonment and difficulty and suffering is waiting for me. I know it. So here, Paul understands the same thing that they understand in Tyre. Paul understands the same thing that Agabus prophesies. Paul sees it all. Paul has been constrained by the Spirit. They've been led by the Spirit. There are not two different visions going on here for what Paul to do. They both understand that it's going to be trouble. It's going to be suffering. Paul knows what is coming, and he is fully aware of the danger. He's not in his mind at all being reckless. He's being faithful. To follow the Lord wherever he leads. That, by the way, is the context of Acts 20, 24. A verse that has meant so much to me throughout my whole ministry. As Paul says, Holy Spirit testifies in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only... I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is saying there are some things worth dying for, and the gospel is it. I don't count my life as precious. I'm not worried about imprisonment. I'm not worried about afflictions, only that the gospel is proclaimed. Paul here has a revolutionary attitude, a world-changing attitude. And, and if I may say this for us here at Taylor's Churches, we say we want to change the world for Jesus. To be able to change the world for Jesus, we must carry with us this same attitude that Paul has. Paul's chief concern in life was not comfort, his chief concern in life was not safety, his chief concern in life was not a great retirement plan at all. His chief purpose was the proclamation of the gospel, whatever it may cost him and wherever it may lead him. That was his chief purpose. And what I believe is that God summons all of his people to trust perfectly in his will to bring him glory with their lives and to advance the gospel wherever they go, wherever he leads. And the question we must ask ourselves should not be, why does suffering happen to me? Why does afflictions come my way? But rather, how can I proclaim the gospel of Jesus in the midst of my trials? That is a revolutionary shift, my friends. 
from being self-centered to being God-centered. It's a revolutionary shift from looking at our own self and only concerned about us to saying, I do not account my life of any value or as precious at all, only that God be glorified. That's the shift. That's revolutionary. That's world-changing. That's different from what anybody in the world brings to us. That's not the direction the world is looking. This is a change that only the gospel can bring in our heart and in our life. And In our passage, we notice that there are things, people, that help Paul fulfill this calling to change the world. There's things and people to help him fulfill this calling. And if you're going to follow the Lord, wherever he may lead, even into the hard things, then here's some things you need from our passage. First, you need godly fellowship with other believers. If you're going to do the hard things in life, if you're going to go wherever the Lord leads you, then you need, you need Godly fellowship with other believers. Just in our passage, we find the constant fellowship that would encourage Paul. He's in Tyre. He stayed there for seven days with believers. He's in Ptolemaeus. He greeted the sisters and brothers, stayed there a day. He goes to Caesarea. He stays with Philip the number of days, it says. He's escorted by believers to Jerusalem where he stays with Manasseh, a, 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 a one who had been saved from early on in the ministry. Paul is constantly on this trip going and fellowshipping with other believers. He's headed to Jerusalem and he's constantly finding himself in the presence and in the hospitality of the saints. And in my mind, when he sees this, they, they, let's see what they do. They give him a welcome. It tells us they received him gladly. How many of us like to be received gladly? Amen? Don't we? How is it that we, that we see this and, and, and Paul comes in and they says they received him with joy, especially Paul, who's had some controversial things in his life and he comes into the believers and they receive him with joy. We are glad to see you. They're not worried about the toys on the floor. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They're not worried about the disruption in every day. They are thankful to see another believer. And not only are they thankful to see him, they meet him with hospitality. Seven days he stays with Philip. Seven days he stays, excuse me, with those entire. It says a number of days he stays with Philip. He's staying in their house. He goes and he stays at Manasseh's house and he stays there for some time. Not only do they receive him, they welcome him into their home. How encouraging is it for Paul trying to make a journey back to Jerusalem to find believers at every stop who receive him gladly and welcome him in with hospitality. Treat him like family. They hear his story. No doubt as they're sitting around, they're not just playing Settlers of Catan or something. They're talking about what God is doing in the world. They're hearing this testimony of the saints believing. They're hearing these things together of how God is working miracles and they're encouraging one another in the faith. Encouraging one another. They heard their story and they heard his plans. And you may say now, Josh, it doesn't seem real hospitable. They keep telling him not to go to Jerusalem. 
It may seem the opposite of being encouraging, but, but let me say something here. I don't believe that's the case. I believe it's the most loving thing you can understand because they don't just accept Paul and take whatever he says. They even push back a little bit. Not in some way just to be uh, giving uh, the, the advocacy from the other side. Y'all ever heard of the devil's advocate playing that role? But just let me remind you, the devil has plenty of advocates and he doesn't need you. He's encouraging me and saying, well, wait a minute, Paul, it'll be hard. It'll be difficult. Don't go there. We love you. We care for you. We know this could be the end. We don't want you to go. They loved him enough to tell him that they want to support him and keep him, but they don't want him to suffer anymore. They don't want him to go. He's had trouble everywhere. Stay with us. We'll take care of you. This was not an effort for them to get Paul to stop his mission. This was a statement of their love for him. We need you here. Peter refers to Christians in this world as strangers and pilgrims. He says, this world is not our home. We are simply passing through. Where you live right now is not your permanent stay location. It's simply a matter of time. We're simply passing through. We're like strangers and pilgrims. But as strangers and pilgrims, we need to recognize that we are not alone. Not only do we know the Lord never leaves us, but the Lord gives us this great treasure of Christian friendship. He gives us other believers that that encourage us on the path. He gives us other believers that, that, that have been through the same things. In fact, As Paul writes to the Corinthians, I seek to comfort you as the Lord has comforted me. I have gone through the trials. The Lord has comforted me. Now I comfort you and you comfort others. As you have been through these various trials and difficulties, you encourage one another. We must not forget that we are not alone. And one of the great gifts God has given us, which by the way is often messy at times, is the gift of Christian friendship and relationship. And if you think you're going to be able to fulfill the will of God in your life all by yourself, then you are foolish. And there's no reason for that. We have each other. We have been placed in this journey together. And Paul, every step, realizes the love of Christian friendship and fellowship. If you're going to do hard things in your life, you too need that same fellowship. Same fellowship. Not only that, you need constant prayer to sustain you. You need constant prayer to sustain you. Twice now, once in the harbor of Miletus there at the end of chapter 20, we see as he's given this time of the Ephesian elders, he knelt down and prayed with them all in verse 26 of chapter 20. And then we see it again here in Tyre as he's there for seven days and and he's leaving. They accompany him outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, Luke tells us. The recourse to prayer at special occasions like this is an instinct that is derived from a life given over to prayer in our private times as well. In other words, as Paul gets on his knees to pray corporately with these other believers, that doesn't just happen. It's not just flowing out of nothing. It's not just a spur of the moment, hey, let's sit on our knees and pray. 
It's flowing from a life that has been given over to prayer. What is prayer? It's communion with God. It's a conversation with God. And like other companions on our journey, why would we dare, if we need Christian fellowship with friends, how could we dare think we don't need communion with our God? If we're going to do the hard things that God's called us to do, then we need to recognize that we have an open conversation that is waiting on us through prayer. Not like other companions on this journey. While we have those companions, this one is even more special. This is the God who sustains us. This is the God who keeps us. And he has told us to enter into his presence and ask him anything we want. Even comfort. Jesus is our example in this. Here's the son of God himself who comes to earth to redeem his people. But while he's on earth, what do we see him doing over and over and over again? He's praying. He prayed alone, he prayed in public, he prayed before meals, he prayed before important decision, he prayed before healing, he prayed after healing, he prayed before teaching, he prayed during teaching, he prayed after teaching. You get the point. Jesus was in constant communication with the Father. On his journey in this world to redeem his people from their sins, there was never a moment that he was separated out from him in prayer. Prayer. Scripture is the bread of life. It sustains us. It gives us strength as we read his word and his promises. But let me say this. If scripture is the bread of life for the believer, prayer is our breath. It's how we live. Shame on us quite often for making prayer just an addition of one formal cliche after another. Shame on us for just throwing out this line and hearing it repeated over and over again and just putting it there. Now, some, you know, in some ways, prayer is any kind of prayer is better than no kind of prayer, but there is that prayer that Jesus looks at with the Pharisees and says, that's not it. What God is calling us to do is not fill our prayers with fanciful words or cliches we had heard. What he's calling on us to do, and hear me when I say this, it's a technical term. He's calling us to spill our guts to him. Cry out to him. Say whatever you will say. Read the Psalms. They don't hold back there. He's calling on us to give him our essence of everything we are. He already knows. He just wants us to speak it to him. Surely this is where Paul gets his understanding of prayer. Like the Lord Jesus, he tells the Thessalonians, Pray without ceasing. His life was there, given over to a time of, of constant back and forth with the Lord. No thing for him then, for Paul. It was no thing for him to kneel down and pray with these believers as he leaves. There's nothing for him. This is what he does. We, we spend our life in prayer. The Lord is my constant companion. And as I've shared in fellowship with them, I share in fellowship with you. And he, he kneels down and prays. He prays for them. He prays for faithfulness. We have his prayers there in the letters that he writes. He, you see those prayers quite often. And he prays, facing future suffering and persecution. If possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. Just as Christ Jesus prays, Paul says, not me, Lord, but you. And at the end of that time there with Agabus and those believers in Caesarea, it says, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. 
like Moses on the mountain at Sinai. Paul is saying, I'm not going unless you go with me, Lord. And if you go, I'll go wherever you lead. Our prayers are a testimony to our need of God and our embracing his will in our lives. Pray without ceasing. If you want to follow God's will and follow him even into the difficult places he may lead, you can't do that without prayer. Without prayer. Which leads us to our final lesson here. You need a God-honoring confidence in your future. If you're going to face difficulty and wherever God may lead to advance the gospel, you need a God-honoring confidence in your future. As Paul leaves for Jerusalem, he is fully aware of the dangers. Those other believers saw that. They saw what was coming. They said, listen, it's going to be dangerous. Don't go there. Paul is fully aware of the dangers. And while they may mean well for Paul, Paul recognizes that he must go wherever God leads. But he goes into Jerusalem not in fearful constraint, not worried about what may happen. He goes into Jerusalem with a confidence. And how do we get that? How do we face every day with the confidence, much less our afflictions and our trials? How do we get to that place? Jesus told his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Paul goes into Jerusalem not afraid of man at all, not afraid of what they may do, not fearful of the change that may go around his feet and his arms. Paul had a greater fear. A greater fear for Paul was not those men that may throw him in chains or persecute him. The greater fear for him was that he would live his life in a way that did not honor God and where he called him. The greater fear for Paul that he would live his life in a way that he did not honor the will of God in his life and where he had led him. And he goes then to Jerusalem with full confidence that nothing can separate him from God's love. By the way, you remember I said he's writing to the Romans on his way to Jerusalem, right? So in that same context, listen to what he writes in Romans 8. In fact, he's wrestling with this very thing as he's writing to the Romans as he's going to Jerusalem. Listen to what he says as he's going to Jerusalem, having been constrained, having been told by Agabus, you're going to be thrown in jail. He says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is intercessing for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is not writing that from the comfort of his home. He's not writing that 
from the comfort of having a ministry with a church reaching 16, 1700 every Sunday. He's not writing that with the comfort of having his retirement plan in place. He's writing that on the way to Jerusalem knowing that persecution is waiting for him. That's the confidence Paul has to face what is coming. A full confidence, not in himself or his work, but a full confidence in the Jesus who has saved him. That's the reason why Paul says to the Philippians to live as Christ and to die as gain. He's writing that from prison, knowing what sentence is over him. Paul knew what was, what was eternal and what was temporary. And as he writes to the Corinthians, he simply says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The suffering and the afflictions of this world are only temporary. And the more we see them and know them, the more glorious heaven becomes to us. Paul's confidence was not in this world at all, but in where he was going in Christ Jesus. He knew the gospel would advance. And how would it advance? Just like it's told us in Revelation 12, it'll advance by the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, and for those who love not their lives even unto death. Paul's confidence was not in himself or his ability or solely on his own judgments. His confidence was in the one who met him on the road to Damascus in the midst of his sin. His confidence was on the one who blinded him with the truth of his light. His confidence is on the one who saved him from his sin and washed him whiter than snow. His confidence is on the one who gave him a mission and a purpose in life to advance the gospel for all glory. His confidence was on the one who left this world to prepare for us another home. And he said, I'm coming back for you. Until then, do not count your life as any value or precious. I'm watching over you. I feed the sparrows. I'll feed you. I clothe the lilies. I'll clothe you. Don't you worry about anything this world has. I will take care of you and I will bring you safely home. That's where Paul's confidence lies. And ultimately, Paul is saying, meantime, the only thing left for me to do is proclaim the glory and majesty of our Savior to anyone who would. That's Paul's confidence. And what I'm telling you this morning as I close, you can have the same exact confidence. You can have the same confidence. The confidence to know that God is with you. The confidence to know that your sins have been forgiven in Christ and the blood of the Lamb has washed you whiter than snow. You can have the same confidence to proclaim God as Savior and Lord because just as He saved you, He can save anybody. And you can have the same confidence to know that whatever happens to you in this world, it is nothing compared to the glory that awaits you in Christ Jesus for eternity. If we're going to do God's will, if we're going to change the world for Jesus, if we're going to go into the gospel advancement into this world, then we are going to face the difficulties this world throws at us. But we face them with each other, and we face them with prayer and a dependence upon the Lord, and we face them with a confidence that whatever comes our way is slight and momentary compared to the glory that awaits us. Only that we proclaim Christ. And in this, trust in Jesus, friend. He 
is our faithful friend that never leaves us nor forsakes us. He is our constant companion that we call on all the time and has never, ever not heard us or answered us. And he is the foundation for our confidence. And we step into the future trusting in him and proclaiming his name. Let's pray together.